Hello, I'm Jack Snow, and we are The Resistance. Welcome to our podcast, The Avalanche of Resistance, where you'll hear reports about vital grassroots activism across the web and beyond. Over the next several weeks, this program will be featuring California Blue Wave candidates for the House of Representatives. And tonight, we're going to welcome Katie Hill to Avalanche of Resistance. Welcome, Katie Hill. Hi, and thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm going to start today by asking you about the schools in District 25. Uh, schools in District 25, with few exceptions, tend to be in the 80th or higher percentile. If elected, what will you do to provide resources to the schools in your district that need improvement? Sure. So at the federal level, the places where we can have the biggest impact are going to be on ensuring that Title I and Title II schools are fully funded. Uh, we do have a fair amount of, of both Title I and Title II schools in the district, especially in the Antelope Valley. That's an area that is has a lower median income, and actually most of the schools in the district are Title I. Uh, so so at the federal level, that's that's where that funding comes from, and, and we have to make sure that those are adequately resourced and that any child, no matter what neighborhood they grow up in, has access to a completely fair and high-quality education. Uh, that's something I'm completely dedicated to and would be in Congress. The other thing is really ensuring that our special needs fund, special needs programs in schools are fully funded. And again, that happens at the at the federal level. We've got you know we've got unfunded mandates currently, and special needs programs are just completely that that's one of the biggest issues for local school districts is the ability to to serve our children that that have had different needs. Um, really falls completely in, in an unfair way to the school districts. Uh, and so I think at the federal level, we need to be doing a much better job of serving those communities uh, and making sure that we're providing the resources that aren't overextending our local school districts. Unemployment in your district is also slightly lower than the national average. Uh, you serve as CEO of People Assisting the Homeless, uh, a not-for-profit. How does your experience with this organization inform your views on the paradoxical relationship between low unemployment and high homelessness? Sure. So first of all, the highest correlation to, uh, the highest correlating factor around homelessness is actually not unemployment. It's around high rents and low vacancy rates. So ironically, when unemployment rates are low, vacancy rates tend to be low and, and rents tend to be higher. So it, it's actually something that people don't expect often, but that, uh, uh, low unemployment rates actually tend, tend to be closer correlated to higher numbers of people experiencing homelessness. So really at the federal level, we have to, you know, of course we have to be addressing, uh, you know, employment, the unemployment issues. We have to always ensure that we're fighting for better jobs that pay a living wage in our communities. But beyond that, we've got to look at the affordable housing issue. In California, we've got a million a million unit shortage at a minimum that we're dealing with. And that's just of, of homes across the board. But when you're talking about dedicated units that are affordable to not just people who are truly poor, but people who are are working, you know, in what used to be really great jobs, whether it's teachers or you know firefighters, police who aren't able to live in the communities that they're serving because they are um, because housing is simply not affordable enough. Like, that's one of the reasons that so many people have moved into my district over the years is because housing has typically been more affordable, and you can raise a family and you can you know have a, a bigger lot and, and good schools without the high, crazy housing costs, but you also are driving an hour, hour and a half each way every single day. 
Um, and frankly, housing in our communities is getting less and less affordable. So we're seeing we're seeing that that push really put pressure uh, across the board in throughout Los Angeles and really across California. And it's definitely impacting our own district in a pretty significant way. So at the federal level, you know, really what we need to be looking at is what are the systemic factors that that affect homelessness and where can we have the biggest influence at the federal level, which is going to be on ensuring that we're resourcing the development of affordable and permanent supportive housing. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that we can do that at the federal level. We've also got to ensure that we're taking pressure off of the rental market as much as we can by making it more possible for people to buy homes. Uh, that's one of the reasons that, you know, as my generation, as the millennial generation, is is looking like the lowest number of people who have bought homes ever. And, uh, and you know, just across the board, more and more people are, are renting instead of even thinking about the possibility of buying um, that puts more pressure on the rental market, which in turn puts, pushes people at the bottom out. And um, so we got to look at, you know, alleviating it from all the different levels. But we also got to look at issues like substance abuse and mental health and treat them as the public health crises that they are. We've got to look at our criminal justice system and how we're ensuring that people who have paid their dues to society, even if they've messed up in the past, have opportunities for reentry, true reentry. Uh, and are able to be successful. You know, we've we've got to look at our healthcare system overall. I can't tell you how many people we served at PATH were became became into a situation of uh, of financial trouble because they, they they it started out with a health issue and they became you know fiscally bankrupt because of trying to get treatment for their kid or for themselves, and that's just not acceptable. Uh, we've got to deal with the foster care system. You know, all of these different factors, income inequality tie in to uh, the, the issue surrounding homelessness. And uh, we have to be looking at it holistically. Uh, and frankly, I think most importantly, we have to have a Congress that's willing to actually address these problems and start to make forward progress. That's actually a pretty ambitious uh, a scope for your, your candidacy. Just um, a few, just a few issues, you know, no big deal. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, the last Democrat to hold... Uh, office in District 25 seat was Ed Royball, who, after mm -hmm. Bill Clinton was elected, reti retired. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. been, it's been pretty much comfortably Republican since. Steve Knight won Absolutely. by six points in the district uh, that went to Hillary for about the same. Uh, what, if anything, does the 2016 election tell you about the path forward for Democrats? Sure. So, yeah, Hillary won the district by seven, and the Democratic challenger last time lost by six. A big part of the reason for that is that he's simply not from our community. He's somebody who was recruited to run and moved into the district in order to run uh, because there wasn't a local candidate who was able to raise the money that's needed to go up against someone like Steve Knight, who's backed by you know the Koch brothers and massive corporate special interests. So, um, yeah, the that's Brian Caforio. He's the one who ran and lost last time. He was a lawyer from the West Side. And frankly, he just didn't understand our community. He, he um, The issues that affect our community are unique. And as somebody who spent my entire life here, I don't need polling to tell me what matters most to people because it's it, they're the same issues that I've lived. They're the same issues that my parents, my family face every single day, uh, that you know the, my friends and neighbors face every single day. And I think that there's something just so fundamentally important about that that it can't really be overstated. You know, we've got, for example, Santa Clarita is the third largest city in LA County, but it's also the biggest small town. You can't go anywhere if you've been, if you've been living here for a, 
a long enough time that you don't run into somebody you know. I mean, just yesterday I was on the phone with someone who works for my campaign. He used to be a personal trainer out here and he ran into my stepmom or soon to be stepmom who was friend or who he had trained at one point before. And this was just while I was on the phone. Later I ended up running in at the grocery store to my mom or my ex stepmom's uh, roommate who used to babysit me. And these are just like those things happen constantly. And those kind of ties to the community that, you know, the connections that you have, I think are just fundamentally crucial to being able to be a successful representative. Not saying that you, you know, we don't want to represent the people who have come here, but fundamentally, this is this is a community and you need to understand this community and not just move here politi for political gain. Um, so that I think that's a big part of it. But also, you know, we're a community that has unique, kind of a unique profile. We've got the highest number of people in law enforcement uh, living in our district than anywhere else in the region. We've got the highest number of people who are veterans living in our district than anywhere else except for right outside of Camp Pendleton in Southern California. And uh, that's, you know, my, my dad is a police officer. My father-in-law is a retired police officer. Um, every generation of my family has served in the military going back to the Revolutionary War. Steve Knight, the Republican incumbent, is a, uh, he's a retired LAPD officer. And he's a veteran. His dad was uh, an Air Force. He was a, a famous Air Force pilot. Um, and so to be able to kind of overcome sort of those natural resonating strengths that, Steve Knight has within our community, you need somebody who also has those strengths. And for example, we've already been able to get the support of uh, the Professional Peace Officers Association, which is the union that represents uh, sergeants and other members of leadership within the LA County Sheriff's Department and other um, associated groups. So the, they've never endorsed against a Republican in this, in this seat, and they've certainly never endorsed against a former cop. So it's a big deal that we were able to that we were able to get that. And it shows that, you know, people are ready for ready for change. They're ready for progress, but they're only going to do it if they feel like you understand their issues and you understand their community. One thing that I, I, I picked up on that you were just talking about right there is is you you you've shown a, a, an impressive amount of respect for your opponent on the Republican side. Um, tell me about that. This is this is something that's actually quite critical to a lot of us that that we can sit down and have a discussion with people we don't agree with. Yeah, I think growing up in a, in a district like this, where we're truly purple, we're, you know, we've got 33% of people are Democrats, 30% are Republicans. This is the first time in living history, as far as, as most of us know, that, that Democrats have outnumbered Republicans. Uh, but a plurality of people don't identify strongly with either party. They consider themselves independent. Um, so we're a district that, you know, party... The party preference is not the defining factor. It's about what you do for the community. Um, you know, you see that across the board with how people work together within community activities, with on boards serving the community on, you know, in within school districts and the programs, the the PTA programs and on soccer teams. Every every single thing, people work together and really, really just in an incredible way come together as neighbors and and community members. Um, so I don't. I just don't think you can grow up here and feel like it should be that we should be as divided as we are as a country. I mean, I grew up in a half Republican, half Democrat household. My dad's a Republican. This is actually the first time he's ever uh, voting for a Democrat that he has will have ever voted for a Democrat. But he's recruiting his Republican friends to do the same because the reality is that the vast majority of us all care about the same things. We think we should take care of our neighbors. We want our communities to be better. We want to actually make sure that, you know, people have opportunities in life. And I think the discussion about how we get there, if you can have it in a, in a uh, productive way, 
uh, most people are up for that. So uh, I think that's really why, you know, why I've taken the approach I have with this campaign. I've met Steve Knight. You know, he's somebody that I, um, it's, it's actually something that I think is really important. I, I, you know, I feel like we completely disagree on policy, but I really do feel like he's not, he's not a terrible person and I'm not going to attack him like he is because I just don't think that that's, that's the kind of community we come from. This dovetails into my next question. Uh, jungle primaries offer certain advantages, but the concern among many in California is that the ample crop of Democrats will split the primary vote such that only Republicans will run in certain districts. If it appears likely, would you be willing to bow out of the primary to ensure another Democrat will challenge Congressman Knight in November? Yeah, so we actually know the answer on this because the filing deadline has passed for who can be on the ballot. And uh, Steve Knight is the only Republican. So it's not a factor in our district, though it is in a number of districts in California. And I think it's something that we should be concerned about. Uh, it was something that we were watching very closely because if he, if that were the case, then Democrats, Democrats needed to drop out. We needed to, we needed to be able to make sure that a Democrat made it through the top two. And in fact, the reason that Steve Knight, well, I can't say the reason he got elected, but when he got elected in 2014, he, uh, it was two Republicans who made it into the top two uh, because of the jungle primary situation. So, you know, he never faced a Democrat in the runoff. And I, who knows if we'd even be having this conversation if things had looked different in 2014. Um, so, yeah, this, but, but in another way, the jungle primary is, uh, is challenging in our race because we're basically, since I'm the front runner and, you know, independent polling is showing that I can beat Steve Knight by 13 points but that my Democrat, my main Democratic opponent, Brian Caforio, at best case scenario, is dead tied with Steve Knight. We are uh, seen as the biggest threat. And so we're being attacked by Republicans. We're being attacked by Democrats on both, you know, both of the other, you know, two kind of serious contenders on the Democratic side are uh, teaming up and are, are going after me. And so, you know, even though I'm the strongest candidate and I do have the most resources, I've, you know, I've, raised, I've successfully out fundraised the other candidates. Um, we're dealing with kind of uh, the fact that, you know, more women on the ballot, there's two other women that are on the ballot, they're pulling more votes away from me than they are from the, my main primary opponent, who's the only other one who could make it through. And he's the one who ran and lost last time. So if the wrong Democrat makes it through this primary, then there's a good chance that we have pretty much lost our chance at flipping this seat. And now onto a personal question. You had an unexpected pregnancy as a young woman. How did that experience inform your views on women's reproductive rights? Yeah, the the biggest thing for me is having gone through that experience and actually having in, experienced infertility later have just made it so clear that these issues are ones that a should be destigmatized at every possible opportunity, and that's one of the reasons that I've been so open about my own experiences and struggles is that I think these are these are these are things that women face in life and are you know, feel ashamed of or like they can't talk about and they suffer in silence. And I just don't think that something that is such a common experience um, and such a, a heart-wrenching and difficult experience for women should be something that we're quiet about. Uh, we should be able to talk about it and we should be able to process it together and, and frankly be able to discuss it as a society and what it means for us. And I think that by doing so, we can we can really reduce the stigma that is associated with all of the issues that are surrounding women's health. And we need that in order to move forward as a society. Um, but, you know, for me, the biggest thing was, was really recognizing that it, 
is the hardest choice that a woman could ever make, no matter what choice she ends up ultimately making, whether it's to keep the pregnancy or to terminate the pregnancy, to give some, you know, the baby up for adoption, whatever it is, if she's facing an unplanned pregnancy, or even, you know, in, in some cases it's a planned pregnancy, but you have, you have uh, major birth defects or, or other situations that could cause you to need to consider an abortion. That is not a decision that the government should ever be involved in. And to try to think that we can try and regulate through through government intervention, those kinds of choices to me is just fundamentally uh, misaligned with with our values and with uh, the role that government should play. So it's pretty much how it's informed my decisions. <laughs> how has this helped you become a role model in your community? Yeah, I, I think the biggest the biggest way that I, I've been able to you know, um, to demonstrate that women can be talking about this kind of thing. And I, I've had many young women, because I've also been open about, you know, my experience with sexual assault. Uh, and I think these are, this, we're living in a time when women are really starting to talk about these things in a more straightforward and honest way. And I've actually been advised, I was advised by other, you know, sitting elected officials who have including women who said, I shouldn't share that story, that it's risky, that it's something that we shouldn't be talking about. And I just don't think that that's the case because, you know, so many women I know have, have been through situations like mine. Um, and I think we need to be able to talk about it. Uh, so I think if I, if I have a platform where people are listening to me, where I'm able to be a voice or a champion for these kinds of issues and to show that it's okay to share your story, that so many of us have gone through this, you're not alone then uh, I think that that's something that, that, you know, really makes a big, can make a big impact on somebody. I agree. Um, one of the other things you've spoken an awful lot about are, are the veterans uh, in your campaign, uh, especially homeless veterans. Uh, mm -hmm. what, can, what can you do in, in Congress to address this intractable problem? Yeah, well, veterans as a whole, to me, taking care of our veterans is is a fundamental duty and obligation that we have as a country. If we're going to send somebody to war or, or in any way ask them to risk everything for our country, then we have to make sure that they come back and are fully taken care of and that we're giving them, you know, the, the, the truest and best possible opportunities to, uh, to, you know, live again as, as civilians, which is an incredibly difficult transition for even the most, you know, uh, for even even somebody who's who's hasn't even served in a in a war zone, um, but now you know we're in constant conflict across the globe. We've got Iraq and Afghanistan, which are you know, so long-standing uh, military conflicts at this point, wars, and we um, you know we don't have proper care in the sense that we have so many veterans who are coming back with PTSD, with traumatic brain injury. Uh, and, you know, the, the Veterans Administration, I think, is doing it I, since I've worked closely with them during my work with PATH. I, I really feel like they're doing everything they can with the resources they have. Uh, but I think that we need to provide more resources for it. And we need to look at housing and substance abuse and mental health as all interconnected uh, and provide those resources as well. And, you know, really intentionally making sure that people have uh, have d discharge planning from the military that is, frankly, a lot is happening a lot sooner than it than it traditionally does and is making sure that people have you know have an ongoing opportunity to make it back into society and to address whatever issues they may be coming out of their service with whether it's physical or mental or emotional or even even just you know needing to have some help with how they how they're going to deal with their family again when you have um, you know 
normal relationships are just it, things are just not the same and providing professional help to deal with that is something that I think you're obligated to do. Um, so, the, you know, veterans have higher incidences of homelessness because of the lack of supports, because more people who are in situations of poverty or of, um, you know, a lack of opportunity join the military in the first place because it's it's a way that they can it, it's an opportunity for them to you know get out of the whatever their community was in the first place or to help with their family i mean in cases before it was in order to get citizenship i mean these are great opportunities that the military provides but um ultimately we have to make sure that we're that we're that that means that they have a a smaller safety net right to go back to and so uh making sure that we're we're acknowledging that as such and uh and ensuring that people are set up when they, after their service to to rejoin the middle class is what what I think it needs to be about. Talking to you reminds me an awful lot of of where I came from. Um oh, really? I used to hang out at the at the American Legion with the old timers. Ex- explain to me a little bit about about where you're coming from. Veterans in particular, I mean, talk to me about your community and how you've, how you've gotten to know these folks. Yeah, well, uh, you know, a lot of it comes from my work with PATH because about a third of the people that we were serving when I was working there were veterans. And that's actually programming that I built up during my time there. I mean, I, and by the time that I left, we were literally helping thousands of veterans every single year. Um, and when I first started, it was, you know, a much smaller number than that. So during my work there, I really got to understand firsthand how people, how veterans ended up experiencing homelessness, not only because we had programming that was focused on both uh, people who are currently homeless, but also preventing homelessness for those who were at risk. So it was, I was able to really see what the struggles were that people were facing and how, um, how we failed, frankly, in terms of providing a safety net, in terms of providing the resources to reintegrate people, and so on and so forth. So uh, some uh, you know we we've worked across the county and actually Path has an office out in the Antelope Valley, um, where we serve uh, literally hundreds of veterans. But um, you know beyond that, just uh, so many people in my family, so many of my friends, people I went to high school with have all served in the military, and many of those are well the younger generation are were are OEF OIF veterans, Afghanistan uh, and Iraq veterans who came back and and simply the they're facing new challenges in terms of multiple deployments, in terms of the kinds of stressors and, and struggles that they faced over there and that they're they're dealing with now um, that I just think that we haven't adequately prepared for or figured out how to approach from you know the perspective of, of we have a generation of people who we have, have a complete obligation to ensure that they're uh, properly taken care of. And that doesn't mean that they need to be dependent on, you know, they did, and they have no desire to be dependent on welfare or on some kind of uh, support forever, because these these are some of the hardest working, most uh, independent and brave people that you'll ever meet. They, and just making sure that they're they're able to fulfill that goal is is what we need to be doing. One last question: What's your favorite word? I saw that on the on the list of questions before, and I thought that was a great one. Um, so my my grandfather was a UCLA professor, and I ended up being uh, he, he was a political science professor, but he 
pretty much whenever I was, when I was a kid, he would always make me, if I didn't know a word when I was reading, he would make me look up the definition. He would never tell me it. And so I spent a lot of time with a dictionary <laughs> when I was a kid, but I, I think one of my favorite words is probably bailiwick. I, th- I just, there's something about that <laughs> word that I really like, <laughs> especially because uh, I've used it with my team before and they honestly did not believe me that it was a real word. And I had to have them look it up. So it was, it was, uh, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, it's just one of those words. I think it, it fits. It has a, a good purpose and we should be using it more often. Absolutely. Uh, what word do you like word or words? Do you like the least? Uh, so one came up today, uh, and I don't really have any good reason for not liking this word, but, uh, one of my staff said that's clutch. And I just don't like the word clutch. Uh, it just, just doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue. Right. Uh, moist is another one. I know a lot of people don't like the word moist, but I'm not, a, I'm not a fan <laughs> of the word moist. Uh, I also don't like the word flag because that's another one that my team says for me. They're like, I'm going to flag this for you. And it, and it never is good news. And it's always just something pretty obnoxious. So I'm not a fan of flagging either. Well, Katie, thank you so much for taking the time with us today and, and having you. your, uh, our listeners uh, get to know you. Uh, this, this actually is a good thing because, because members of the resistance get together and we do things and we, Absolutely. we uh, uh, just recently I shaved off my beard for, uh, for <laughs> a, a candidate in, uh, in, in Wisconsin. You may have heard wow. of him, Randy Bryce. Of so, course. Yeah, we did the we did the whole stash bound thing, and that was oh my uh, goodness. Nick Nick Nudson got us all together, and at some point he's like, "I'm going to draft you," and so we wound up over there. Uh, <laughs> wow! So <Very> nice. <laughs> but but I just I just That's heard great. that he'd raised over a million dollars uh, in in his campaign. Yeah, so this is definitely something that that helps, and 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 it helps to it helps to put a voice and a and a, and a face to all this. So I definitely want to thank you for for taking time out of your very busy schedule uh to let our listeners get to know you uh and and so they can help you in your campaign for district thank you we definitely need the help the 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 primary is is coming up very quickly so uh yes we it's we've raised all of our funding from grassroots efforts we've got over five thousand individual donors and yet we outraised steve knight who has uh, taken over $700,000 from corporate PACs and the NRA and um, other, you know, Stoke brother interest groups and everything like that. So we're, we're up, we have, we have a lot that we're up against, but I know we can do it. And it definitely helps when you're someone like Randy Bryce, who's running against a name that people hate so much, like Paul Ryan or uh, Andrew, Andrew Jans is another candidate that I really like who's running against Devin Nunes. And uh, yeah, those, those uh, famous, Famous opponents are definitely helpful in terms of fundraising, but Steve Knight has has managed to be pretty under the radar, but definitely someone we need to still defeat. <laughs> well, if you happen to talk to Andrew Jantz, let him know about us, and we'll be happy to talk to him too. I will, definitely. He's a good guy. All right. Thank you very much, and have a great day. Thank you so much. You too. That was Katie Hill. This is the Blue Wave on the Avalanche of Resistance. I'd like those of you that are able to head over to Katie Hill for congress.com and donate. And you can also help by donating to Democrats Work for America at democratsworkforamerica.org. We are a political action committee formed explicitly to empower political grassroots activists by providing the needed resources to put their ideas into action. I'm Jack Snow of The Resistance. (laughs) 